Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Emma Norton. And I'm Chloe Rafferty. And we are your new co-hosts. Welcome. Uh, Tragically, Ros Ward, our previous host, is leaving us for a whole year. She'll be our UK correspondent for that time, though. Um, We're excited to hear about what antics she gets up to, hopefully gets to be on some picket lines and that sort of thing. But in the meantime, you're stuck with us. We're in Sydney, so we are recording this episode on the land of the Gadigal people, This land was never ceded, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, And in this episode, we get to talk about one of the most inspiring uprisings of Aboriginal workers in Australian history. That's because today we are celebrating May Day, the international working class holiday and day of struggle. It's coming up on the 1st of May and we're taking this opportunity to tell you about three of the greatest strikes in Australian history. Um, We thought, though, that we would start the episode off by introducing ourselves a little bit. Chloe, why don't you go first? Why did you get involved in socialist politics? Well, I got involved in socialist politics about 10 years ago. Um, So it was back in the last Labor government under Rudd and Gillard, um, who were um, as appalling, if not worse, than Albanese. Um, Some of the first protests that I went to were about the appalling treatment of refugees. Um, Gillard was trying to implement the Malaysia solution, um, kind of outflanking even the Liberal Party sometimes on how brutal they could be towards refugees. So went along to, to a lot of those protests. But before I kind of even uh, was introduced to the organised left, I would say it was the war on terror, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, you know, the horrors of Abu Ghraib. Um, that was one of the big things that my generation of socialists um, looked to uh, to see just you know, how bad capitalism is and you know why you can't have a world, a day of peace actually in a system like capitalism. Mm. Yeah, I remember those protests against the Gillard and Rudd governments. Um, the, I got involved a couple of years before you, I think, in 2011. And uh, it was basically very exciting because the Arab Spring was happening and there were you know, massive revolutions and people's uprisings across the Arab world. Uh, it was a real living, breathing example that uh, people could rise up against dictators and, and really challenge the system. So it was really inspiring for Someone uh, in my, I think I was in my third year of uni, I was just kind of uh, dipping my toes into the left and left-wing politics. Um, the other thing that really motivated me, though, was like women's rights and, and um, fighting against sexism, and especially like abortion rights. I organised probably my first ever protest that I went to was one that I organised against like the far right um, protesting an abortion clinic in Perth which, yeah, we are still uh, fighting against the far right and uh, they've grown even stronger, um, especially around that question of, of abortion rights around the world. So definitely still relevant, still fighting around all of those kinds of questions. Um, we did think that a way of getting to know each other, I mean, we know each other, but a way that our listeners can get to know their new hosts a little bit is we can ask some random semi-political questions of each other. So um, I'll start by asking Chloe, what is, uh, who is a historical figure you would most like to have a beer with? Well, I think Lennon's probably more of a coffee drinker. So I think <laughs> I have to be entirely unoriginal and say Karl Marx, who was known to like a shock. bar or two. 
um, pretty known for actually pub crawling around Tottenham Court in London with a bunch of the other German uh, exiles, German political refugees. So, yeah, I think probably Karl Marx have a lot to say and probably be pretty fun. Um, well, question for you, Emma. What's the most annoying thing people say to you when they find out that you're a socialist? There's so many, but I think, I think one of the worst is when older people are like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was young, I was like that too, but I grew older and wiser. Um, partly it's annoying because I feel like I am old enough now to have earned my stripes as like I am committed to, to socialist politics. I haven't moved to the right. Um, but also like I, I just know so many people um, who are, you know, older and have re remained socialists their entire lives and have been fighting the system uh, for decades. And also it's not even true that people get more right-wing as they get older. Studies have been done. I, yeah, I will not cite them right here. I do not have that information in front of me, but studies have been done and, you know, people, um, yeah, can even move to the left as they get older as a whole. I also once read a really horrifying study that showed that maybe one of the reasons there aren't lots of left-wing old people is that they die younger. Sad. That's grim. Yeah, I know. I guess because poorer people are more left-wing. It's, it's sad. It's tragic. But, you know, yeah, it's a myth basically that you just get more right-wing and reactionary as you get older. Who is your most hated ruling class figure, Chloe? Well, I think your first hate is the deepest. So I would have to go with John Howard. Um, and I was actually lucky enough to be involved in organising a protest against Howard um, at my old university, the University of Sydney, when they wanted to give him an honorary doctorate. Um, so we had a protest, uh, John Howard, Doctor of War Crimes. Um, and, you know, I'm saving up a sickie for when he finally carks it. I'm throwing the block party. Well, a question for you. What's the best protest you've ever been to? Ah, uh, hmm. Oh, man, so many good ones. Okay, the actual best one. I don't remember why I was in Melbourne, but I flew into Melbourne and I went straight from the airport to a Milo Yiannopoulos, an anti-Milo. Well, we went Milo. to a Milo Yiannopoulos Yeah, yeah. Protest. No, not to, not to hear the guy speak. Um, an anti-Milo Yiannopoulos protest. He had, like, uh, set up a, a, you know, a speaking tour or whatever, uh, and he was speaking, I think, somewhat provocatively, uh, right in front of a whole bunch of social housing, like big apartment buildings um, in Melbourne, a part of Melbourne that I, I can't remember the name of. Um, and, it, you know, there were lots of migrants in those buildings and he was giving this provocative right-wing racist uh, speech, obviously. And we were having a, a counter-protest against his, like, followers and him. Um, and so there was, like, the, the right-wingers in front of the building. There was, like, a big row of riot cops uh, who were terrifying with their little shields that they bang to intimidate you. And then there was the left. And suddenly, at, at some point, I think the, a lot of the young, like, migrant kids in the uh, apartments realised what was happening and came out and basically, allegedly, uh, started, like, launching firecrackers and things like that at the, um, at the far right. And kind of, you know, us and them had this big... Um, back and forth with the with the police it was it was quite electric and i'm not going to lie it was enjoyable yeah sounds awesome our comrades across the world so may day on the 1st of may was originally the date of a pagan festival i think one where you 
danced around a maypole or something. Um, but it's obviously been for the last 150 years or more very important to the workers' movement and the socialist movement internationally. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg wrote an interesting article about the origins of May Day and she argues that the Australian workers' movement were basically the, um, the origins of it in a way because uh, people here were the first to try to hold an annual proletarian holiday celebration strike kind of thing uh, all the way back in 1856. So the date they decided on wasn't May 1st, it was April 21st, but close. And they used a big uh, strike demonstration that year to fight for the eight-hour day, which um, from that moment on was a really key demand of the workers' movement, not just here in Australia, but all around the world. The argument was basically that workers should have the right to eight hours rest, eight hours recreation and eight hours work, uh, rather than the nine, 10, 11, 12-hour days that people were working. Um, kind of sad to note because I, I know a lot of workers around the world today have nothing like the eight-hour day and do a lot of uh, overtime, including unpaid overtime. Um, but in 1856, it was actually a big success, the, the strike day, and they decided to continue it. Um, and obviously, actually in 1856, the stonemasons in Melbourne uh, did win the eight-hour day and that began to spread um, as a right around the country. Um, but decades later in America, May Day became a conflagration when workers in Chicago also tried to use it to launch their campaign for the eight-hour day. There was a police crackdown against their protests uh, and the next day, anarchist leaders who um, were uh, important in the workers' movement there called for a demonstration. The police demanded on that day that the crowd disperse and suddenly a bomb was thrown and police began shooting. They killed over a dozen people and wounded many more. Afterwards, in the aftermath, eight anarchists were framed for the bomb and uh, convicted of murder. Four of them were hanged and another committed suicide and the remaining three did eventually have their convictions overturned on the basis that the, uh, surprise, surprise, the court case had been uh, extremely biased against uh, these representatives of the workers' movement. And these people became known as the Haymarket Martyrs and they inspired generations of American workers to celebrate May Day on May 1st in their honour. One of the most important things about May Day is the idea of internationalism, um, that May Day is not just a working class strike, but an international working class strike. And I think that's really an important concept for socialists, that the working class have a collective interest that crosses borders and a collective power uh, that can not just take on the nation state, uh, but take on capitalism all across the world. So it's not surprising, I think, that it was socialists that um, came up with the idea of May Day and it was the Socialist Second International uh, in 1889 which called for May Day to be uh, an international strike uh, and rally um, for the eight-hour day. Some of the other demands they also called for were the class demands of the proletariat, which I think is everything, um, and also universal peace. And this was really important because at the time, uh, the early tensions which would eventually lead to the outbreak of World War I were already becoming really obvious to socialists and Marxists all around the world. Um, unfortunately, pretty infamously, um, if people are a bit familiar with working class history, the Second International betrayed those principles of internationalism. They actually backed their governments in World War One um, and called for so, uh, workers to actually, you know, sign up and fight worker against worker. Um, but revolutionaries um, held on to that concept of internationalism, opposition to war. Um, and, and May Day, importantly, um, actually during World War One, uh, was an important day of opposition uh, to the brutality of World War One. So 
the May Day actually in uh, Russia in 1917. Uh, the Russian Revolution had already broken out in February. They'd overthrown the Tsar. Um, and the demands of the Russian Revolution had been for peace, land, and bread. But on May Day in 1917, because they hadn't actually overthrown capitalism yet, uh, the war was actually still going on. Um, so it was a kind of contradictory May Day in 1917 in Russia, where on the one hand, they'd gotten rid of the Tsar. Um, you know, workers had won the right actually to May Day. Their protest wasn't banned. It was enormous demonstrations in the city of Petrograd. At the same time, there were soldiers holding May Day meetings in the trenches. Um, and workers were celebrating in Russia um, and also encouraging the celebration of Austro-German prisoners of war. Um, so May Day was uh, an important turning point because actually uh, one of the new government ministers um, had a, uh, a memo leaked, uh, a message that he had sent to uh, the Allied governments on behalf of the new supposedly revolutionary government that the provisional government in Russia was willing to fight World War I to the bitter end. So uh, May Day itself, but the days uh, leading after May Day actually were an important turning point in the Russian Revolution when workers thought, actually, it's not enough just to get rid of the Tsar. We have to get rid of all of capitalism if we want to end the war and have genuine internationalism. Yeah, one of the interesting little tidbits about, um, about this is the rival day in September of Labor Day. Uh, which we have here, I can't remember when it is here actually, but in the US and Canada, uh, it's in September. And uh, governments basically refuse to accept May Day because of its socialist origins. So because the Second International in 1889, you know, declared it this, um, this important socialist and, and working class holiday, it was associated with, you know, the kind of anti-capitalist ideas uh, of the socialists. Um, because of that, they declared this rival Labor Day to try and so it's kind of like a more reformisty crap uh, version of, of May Day. So that's an interesting little little fact. Uh, one cool thing actually about uh, the May Day celebrations that will be happening in Australia is um, I know that the South Coast Labor Council down in Wollongong always have a demonstration um, on the weekend, sadly, not a strike, um, but a weekend demonstration. And the central uh, issue that they're going to be rallying around is the AUKUS deal because the AUKUS um, submarines are most likely be going to be hosted in Port Kembla if the Labor government have their way. And the workers' movement have come out and taken a stand against that. I think it's a really excellent thing to see from a bunch of the trade unions down in Wollongong. Um, and we'll certainly be there uh, celebrating May Day and taking a stand against the drive to war. Yeah, so if you're in New South Wales, try get to the Wollongong May Day on the 6th of May. Um, but there will be May Day protests of a kind all around the country. The best one I ever went to is, um, I should have said, I'm originally from Perth and uh, the WA May Day in Fremantle is actually still quite a big tradition, um, partly because the wharfies there in the Maritime Union get a lot of people out on May Day and have a big march around Fremantle. So things like that will be happening, no doubt. So um, if you're in Australia or anywhere in the world, really, um, see if there's a May Day near you that you can join on or around the 1st of May. The day of the revolution All right, the idea for the rest of our episode today is to give you a glimpse into some inspiring strikes in Australian history that we think you should know about. Unfortunately, Australian labour history isn't really taught in schools or in broader society. Uh, I studied history and I don't feel like I, like at university, and I don't feel like I really learnt much about Australian labour history there even. 
So you might be forgiven for thinking that things have been pretty boring and quiet uh, here on the labor front, but that's definitely not the case. Um, it's been incredible, uh, an incredible history of struggle here in Australia. Um, because of that, it was really hard to narrow it down to just three strikes. So we're sorry if your favorite strike missed out, but um, I think you'll really enjoy these ones. So we spoke to three historians and activists about each of these strikes. And first up, we'll be talking about the Great Strike of 1917. And history buffs might recognize that this coincided with the Russian Revolution. Was that a coincidence? And what's so great about this strike? Uh, we talked to Mick Armstrong, a founding member of Socialist Alternative and just a, a ridiculously knowledgeable guy, to find out. All right. Hi, Mick. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so I'll just start off by asking, how did you hear about this strike? Well, it was when I was about 12 years old and my great aunt, I was in Sydney visiting, and she told me the story of the strike, that she'd just arrived in Sydney from the bush. Um, she was about 15 years old and it was the greatest moment of her life. Like this is 40 or 50 years later and she just remembered it this, the time of liberation, a fantastic time when working class people were asserting themselves and seemed to be taking over the world. And she said, you know, that experience lived on throughout her whole life. And you can understand why, uh, the nature of the strike. And it was so a moment. You know, Lenin talks about revolutions being a festival of the oppressed, of the oppressed. And this strike really exhibits it, you know. It was so buoyant and triumphant, at least to start with, and that. Okay, so where did the strike start? Well, we've got to talk about the context of the time. You know, this is the so-called Great War. There'd be mass, there'd been by, you know, the time the strike starts in August 1917, there'd been mass slaughter at the, uh, the front. Uh, a major uh, assault on the living standards of workers in Australia. Anti-war sentiment had grown substantially. The previous year, the first attempt to introduce conscription had been defeated at the referendum. You know, the working class movement was starting to move and assert itself, and there'd been a series of big strikes and that. And this came as the, the great breakout. You know, it started in Sydney, um, in the uh, tramway workshops at Redfern and the railway workshops at Eveley. Uh, the workers worked out there. Uh, it was over their tax on their conditions, but the background was an assault by the ruling class on the, on the working classes as a whole. And that explains why it spread so rapidly. So the skilled workers in the machine shops and the carriage works and so on, they started it, but very rapidly it spread through the railway system, um, but also then to everything that touched it. You know, the, the trains then ran on coal. So the coal miners came out because they refused to resupply coal. You know, the waterfront struck. You know, it just spread through industry. And this is a strike, you know, like unlike any strike for a long time, that is massively driven from below by the workers. The union officials didn't initiate these strikes overwhelmingly. It was driven from below, an assertive working class, confident, coming out in solidarity and spreading. And it goes on for months, month after month. Um, you know, from August, it's not until December uh, that the final groups of workers go back uh, in, on the waterfront of Melbourne and that. So it's this surging uh, uh, outbreak. And that um, the bond was so there's a great working class confidence people just work walking out uh, so for example the uh, women calf workers uh, at Central Station in Sydney just defied the management and, and just came out you know uh, and really defiantly uh, and they just w w walked out and asserted themselves and basically 
saying to the bosses, well, you can shove it and that. Uh, and, that and so there's huge demonstrations um, uh, pretty much you know, right throughout the strike going to the domain in Sydney and that. Incredibly buoyant, lively ones, assertive ones and so on. The bomb was there was no uh, centralised leadership thrown up by the rank and file to coordinate the strike. There was not these big rank and file democratic-based strike committees which would organise this. Uh, and that meant over a period um, that, you know, the officials who were thrown to the sidelines, pushed away initially, could gradually start to reassert themselves to end the strike. And all their role was played in trying to stop people coming out, trying to limit it and, and so on. Uh, and, that, and eventually they sold a really grubby deal to get people back. But again, there was a lot of resistance to that. A lot of workers refused to accept the agreement. It dragged on for week after week. But there was no alternative leadership. And, th and there was no alternative leadership to organise centralised activities to defeat the strike-breaking because the government launched massive repressive measures against the workers and brought on uh, scabbing, you know, using, you know, middle-class people, farmers and so on, or pretty much every university academic and staff member and university student at Sydney Uni was being used to scab and all that. But there was no centralised force to organise serious picketing uh, and that to stop this and that. But, so eventually they were defeated. But um, that didn't end it in terms of the working class movement because um, the Conservative government, headed by Billy Hughes, had been the previous Labor Prime Minister, had been expelled from the Labor Party because he supported conscription. He thought then, you know, the working class had been defeated, now we can impose conscription. And later in the year, he, on the back of it, defeating the Great Strike, you know, well over 100,000 workers went out, a much tiny population compared to today in Australia. You know, it spread from Sydney through Melbourne uh, and that, you know, and in Melbourne there were huge riots and that and because the coal miners were out, the street life, because they had depended on coal to produce gas, had been become inoperative. So there was huge riots led by Adela Pankhurst, women rioting for over food and all that. So that, you know, society from ruling class's point of view is breaking down, enormous challenge. Yet, and despite this defeat of the Great Strike, actually the second attempt to introduce conscription referendum was defeated even more overwhelmingly, uh, which showed that, you know, people were drawing conclusions, there were radicalisation and so on, and then over the, uh, the subsequent year or two, uh, the working class movement rebuilt, and in 1919 we saw the greatest level of strikes ever in Australia. Uh, very militant strikes, which won, which won major victories, and that, uh, and that. So you saw it going on. Huge radicalisation from the war, the, 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 the you know the um, living standards attacks, the, the you know the number of deaths at the front, and then political factors drawn into it. Of course, then you had you know large section of the working class of Irish Australian background had been radicalised uh, by the British imperialisms. Um, slaughterous war in Ireland and so on. So you this whole uh, radicalisation society. Um, the part of the bind politically, and I might be running out of time now, is that a revolutionary force hadn't been built to take advantage of this. In the largest revolutionary organisation going into the First World War had been the industrial workers of the world um, who, you know, took a good stand against the war, campaigned against subscription, uh, but... Uh, were broken up by repression and were unable to deal with the repression and take advantage of the situation, you know, that they, they their syndicalism uh, was the major political 
uh, factor, if you like, in terms of the radical section of the working class movement, and, and even though the rank and file uh, members of the IWW and other syndicalists played a good role in the strike, they didn't prevent, they didn't uh, cohere to provide an alternative leadership to try to lead this strike to victory, um, and that. But that was far from the end of the story, and it did show that working class people were capable of organising, uh, capable of uh, cohering themselves um, and providing a fundamental challenge to the system. And, you know, they weren't just dictated by uh, bureaucrats and so on. You know, this was tremendous upsurge from below, from workers sowing solidarity with each other and that. And it showed the potential of the period uh, and that to provide a real challenge to the system. So in many ways, this is probably the greatest and most radical strike we've ever seen in, in, in Australia by a long way, uh, which opened up all sorts of lessons for the future and, and that, and laid the basis for the next few years of radicalisation as well. And what are some of those lessons, Mick? Can you maybe summarise a few of them for our listeners? Well, I think there's a few important ones. One is that working class people do have the potential uh, in the right circumstances to come together, to assert themselves, to break through all the shackles in society, defy the media, defy the government, defy all the state forces and provide and defy, you know, the, the leaderships of the trade unions uh, who were trying to hold it back and, of course, the leadership of the Labor Party uh, that hardly wanted to turn this into a fundamental challenge of society. So that's one thing, that it shows the potentiality, uh, that the collective ethos that can cut through uh, and that, and that in the course of struggle itself, workers can learn major lessons. They can become radicalised. They can get a sense of their own power. The other lesson is that all that exists and is incredibly positive, but unless in advance there's a coherent uh, force of socialists and revolutionaries that have a political understanding uh, of a way forward, uh, you know, a clear analysis of what's wrong with the Labor Party and the trade union leadership and offer an alternative as an organised force, a party of some thousands, really, or tens of thousands, um, that, uh, you know, potential can be wasted. Um, and that just, I think, underlines the importance. We see the lessons from working class history, the potential working class of, of what work workers can do in times of great crisis and attacks and so on, but that potential uh, can be, well, pissed up against the wall if there's not a coherent force know, to draw the lessons and take it, you know, hear that and turn it into a real challenge to the system and that, and which is prepared to really stand up to the bosses. Next up is the Pilbara strike of 1946. This was a strike of Aboriginal pastoral workers in Western Australia that actually began on May Day. So it really should be more famous because it's actually Australia's longest strike. Yeah, and we asked Nick Everett, who's a historian and activist from WA, to tell us a bit about it. Hi, Nick. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good. So can you tell us what happened in May 1946 in the Pilbara? Sure. Well, um, the May 1946 Pilbara strike uh, actually lasted for three years until uh, 1949, and it's perhaps one of the least known um, major industrial disputes in Australian history, um, or at least should be much better than known, I think, than it is. Um, what happens uh, at that time is... Over the course of this three-year period, around 800 Aboriginal pastoral workers spread right across the Pilbara, um, took uh, strike action 
to campaign not only for a wage increase, but against the um, ex super exploitation of Aboriginal workers across the Pilbara. Just to explain this for some context, the Pilbara is bigger than the state of Victoria, so a huge area. Um, settlers arrived there in the 1860s, or colonists, I should say, establishing um, a pastoral industry on the lands of Aboriginal peoples, and their um, conquest was brutal, and the subsequent exploitation of Aboriginal labour was brutal. So you had from 1905 a act known as the 1905 Act that um, set up um, uh, arrangements where Aboriginal workers were not allowed to leave the stations. They were essentially like bonded labour. Um, officially, the pastoralists were um, supposed to establish written contracts with Aboriginal workers, although this rarely happens. And native commissioners were appointed under the or a native commissioner and uh, native officers were appointed under the 1905 Act um, who could um, return Aboriginal workers to a pastoral station if they ran away. Um, the 1905 Act also introduced uh, powers that were subsequently um, made harsher in the 1930s to enable the removal of Aboriginal children. So while all this is going on, um, there are native settlements established in different parts of the state which are basically um, grooming young um, Aboriginal people, um, children in fact, uh, to work as um, domestic workers, often um, in sexual, virtual sexual slavery, um, as well as in a range of different um, rural and agricultural work. Um, so, so this is going on. So you have um, uh, growing anger amongst the um, workforce right across the Pilbara. And then World War II happens just before the strike, and that uh, brought about a lot of changes. So um, Aboriginal people were not allowed to enter Port Hedland um, without a, a work permit during the, the war, um, and they found themselves displaced um, and so on. So this all uh, blew open um, with a strike that commenced in May 1946, there were um, some key leaders within that strike. Clancy McKenna organised the um, workers, mostly of mixed descent, who lived around the Port Hedland area, and Dooley Bin Bin represented the inland workforce. Um, and once once the strike got going, um, there was immediate crackdown from the um, state of Western Australia. So the government um, jailed uh, Clancy McKenna and Dooley Bin Bin virtually straight away, um, and the uh, wider labour movement um, began to come to their aid. And we saw this first with a, a mass meeting on the Esplanade in um, Perth, and then a committee established called the Committee to Defend Native Rights. Um, and that committee played a very active role uh, over the duration of the strike, um, championing their cause. Um, and it wasn't as though hundreds of workers went out straight away. Many were too intimidated to do so. So. Um, uh, Clancy and Dooley travelled around. Um, I gather Dooley travelled on a bicycle, visiting the different um, pastoral stations, uh, encouraging workers to come out. And they established two strike camps, one um, near Port Hedland and one near Marble Bar. And they organised schools within the strike camps. Um, they um, sought to find ways to um, uh, live by other means through hunting kangaroo, um, selling kangaroo skins, alluvial tin mining, um, shell pearl, um, uh, pearl shell collection, uh, all kinds of uh, ways to, to try and make ends meet um, during the strike. Um, and there was um, 
uh, serial crackdowns by um, police and uh, native officers who who would go in and um, uh, jail strike leaders, uh, and this happened routinely. Um, the Committee to Defend Native Rights in Perth uh, distributed a, a booklet to uh, explain what the strike was about. Um, it gained the support of um, dozens of, of trade unions uh, here in Perth. Um, and as the strike developed, um, the Communist Party, who was very active in the trade union movement at the time, um, began to um, uh, organise around the idea of a black ban of wool uh, in Port Hedland. Um, and two key figures in, involved in this um, were Paddy Troy, who was the secretary of the Lumpers Union, who covered dock workers in Fremantle, and Ron Hurd, the um, the Fremantle secretary of the Seamen's Union. And they they urged um, wharf labourers in Port Hedland to black ban the wool um, coming out of the pastoral stations so that um, the, uh, the the station owners would have to concede to the to the strikers' demand, and that was not an easy task because uh, they didn't actually organise the workers on Port Hedland Wharf. They were organised by the AWU, the Australian Workers Union, uh, under Labor leadership. Um, through the early years of the strike, there was a Labor government um, that was totally hostile to uh, the rights of Aboriginal workers. Um, it was succeeded by a Conservative government um, who tried various things to break the strike. Um, they tried establishing a, a new mission um, and enticing workers to move there um, without success. Um, but eventually the, the strike um, succeeded and um, the vast bulk of the stations offered the workers 30 shillings per week as they demanded. But the... the the payment in wages was really just one small element of this dispute. Um, as it went along, the workers gained confidence. Uh, they had a sense of um, autonomy, um, being able to make their own livelihood independent of these um, pastoral station owners gave them um, bargaining power so that they were um, that they could no longer be treated in the way that they had been um, through through the decades that preceded. Um, and it wasn't as though this issue hadn't arisen in WA before. There'd been um, disputes and um, publicity around the treatment of Aboriginal workers back in 1912, a, um, a, fer a serious debate within the AWU about whether it should organise Aboriginal workers. Um, but uh, this strike really did change the world for, the, for these workers. It was 20 years before the Wave Hill walk-off um, in the Northern Territory, um, 20 years before the... Um, referendum um, on uh, on, on uh, Indigenous peoples' inclusion in the constitution and um, in the census, sorry, and Aboriginal peoples' um, uh, recognition from the federal government. But at the same time, um, it, it 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 set a it set a precedent where um, these workers could just no longer be treated essentially as slave labour. And what do you think are some of the important lessons our listeners can learn from this strike? Um, well, I think um, it, it goes to show the, the power of, of working-class people um, and highly oppressed working-class people. Um, it was also a paramount example of unity in the labour movement. Um, it, the, the, strikers, the strike itself would not have got off the ground had it not been for the efforts of communists um, in um, 
different parts of the country, not only in Perth, uh, to draw attention to this strike. Um, the Communist Party at the time produced a West Australian newspaper called Worker Star. Um, they also produced a, um, a, a national paper called The Tribune, and they would disseminate this on street corners, in, in uh, at work, in, in railway workshops, um, in coal mines. And so they were able to get the word out to um, other um, working, working class fighters, combatants who took up the cause of Aboriginal rights. Um, and I think that that's sort of key to understanding not only how um, you build and develop a strike that can win, but also um, more widely for the advancement of Aboriginal people. That the fact that the Pilbara strike is talked about today, that um, uh, at all, you know, it, it's down to um, workers of, in, of many different persuasions in many, many different industries who were just not prepared to accept the the. Um, regime under which these workers were treated um, so poorly um, and, and to go about um, with a wider ambition to change, change not only the conditions of Aboriginal workers but really to change the world. I've got to say this next strike is probably the one that I talk about the most in my everyday life. There's so many lessons to draw from it. It's the 1969 Clary O'Shea strike. We spoke to Diane Fields, a Marxist and Labor historian, about why this strike opened the floodgates of working class radicalism. Well, welcome, Diane. Um, I thought we could start um, by uh, hearing a bit about what the 1969 Clary Shea strike was all about. Like, what were the anti-union laws that they were confronting? Okay, well, that's the key thing, anti-union laws. Like, Australia's always had, since there have been unions, there have been anti-union laws and the bosses have always tried to use the legal system in various ways to make sure that workers didn't exercise their right to strike, to withdraw our labour, the, the most democratic right I think that there is. So in the 1950s and 1960s, these laws uh, took the form of what became known in the union movement as the penal powers. Basically, it meant if you went on strike, the bosses could get the courts to rule that you weren't allowed to go on strike. And once they'd ruled like that, then if you went on strike, they would fine you vast amounts of money. And if that sounds familiar, it's because pretty much that's how the industrial relations system, the Fair Work Commission operates today. So that was the starting point. And by the 1950s, 1957, even the ACTU, which was then as now not a radical body, the ACTU had adopted a policy of opposition to the penal powers. But what the left-wing unions who were constantly doing battle with the right-wing unions in the ACTU, what they were not able to win was anything to make that actually happen. So you can be opposed to the penal powers, but what are you going to do about it? And so the 50s and into the 60s, various unions did accumulate fines and so on, but they were never able to win the argument that what the union movement needed to do in general was to refuse to pay them. So that was kind of setting the scene really for what happened when a bunch of unions in the later 1960s decided that they would stick their necks out and just refuse to pay. So uh, unions were frustrated at the anti-strike laws. A whole series of the left unions were beginning to want to confront these laws. What kicks off the confrontation? What uh, ends with uh, you know, the dramatic outcome of this big strike wave? Well, probably the big dispute that took place at the beginning of 1968 in the metal industry was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, that 
workers in that industry and it was a real pace setter in terms of militancy and wages, wage rises and so on, that by the beginning of 1968, the bosses were starting to arc up and to basically use the courts and the courts were very much part of what the bosses wanted to do. The courts basically said, you don't have to pay. We'll award a pay rise, but you don't have to pay it. And there was a massive outbreak of strikes across the industry in early 1968. And as a result of all those strikes, well, they were successful in the sense that the bosses ended up having to pay the money, but the unions that were involved, the metal trade unions, all accumulated more and more massive amounts of fines. And that really kicked things off in terms of, well, we're going to go for it now. We're not paying. The union movement, we should never have paid. The union movement is no longer going to pay these fines, that it is our democratic right to go on strike and we're not having any court telling us we can't. So that was really setting the scene for what happened in 1969 when Clary O'Shea, who was the head of the tramways union in Victoria, was taken to court because of his union's refusal to pay any fines. So I could go on a bit more about what happened with him and I, I think that the starting point for that was not somehow the tramways union was particularly militant or anything, but this was a policy that more and more of the left-wing unions, particularly in Victoria, where the left unions, known as the rebel unions, had actually split away from the Victorian Trades Hall Council uh, on the basis of being more militant and more left-wing than those who remained in the Trades Hall Council. They were together going to confront these laws and O'Shea's case became the kind of the test case, if you like, but it could have been any one of a, a number of different unions. So his union refused to pay the fines. Initially, the courts, again, the court system is really important in all of this. The arbitration system, the court system, they decide, well, the union won't pay the fines. We'll just take their money anyway. So they go through the bank system and they take over $3,000 of the union's money, which just says to the union, don't keep your money in the bank anymore. So then they demand that O'Shea has to come to court, front up to the industrial court and answer questions about the whereabouts of the union's money and you know, basically to pledge to pay the fines that the union has accumulated. So he's given this court date. It's the 15th of May, uh, which was a Thursday, I think. And he goes to court, but he doesn't go to court like you, you know, you or I would just turn up to court. Maybe there's a little protest out the front. The rebel unions call a mass meeting of delegates and members of the various left-wing unions to take place at eight o'clock in the morning, and he has to go to court at 10:30. And so they have this mass meeting um, quite some way from the court. Uh, various speeches are made. People pledge their undying willingness to strike and to not pay fines and all of those things. And then the whole meeting marches to the court, thousands of people march to the court. So that's a pretty good sort of starting start to the day. O'Shea goes into court and he confronts the judge. The judge is, and his name is worth knowing, the judge is John Kerr, later Sir John Kerr, the guy that dismissed the Whitlam government uh, undemocratically in 1975. But in 1969, he's a judge of the industrial court and he tries to demand that O'Shea has to answer all these questions about where's the union's money, that the money must be surrendered, it's owed, etc. 
and O'Shea refuses to comply in any way at all. And so at the end of the court hearing, when it's obvious that O'Shea is not going to go along with what the judge wants, uh, John Kerr decides that he will have to be uh, committed to prison indefinitely for contempt of the court. And so O'Shea is taken to Pentridge Prison and all hell breaks loose pretty much immediately. So to begin with, and this is a real sign of the times and a sign of the kind of militancy, rank and file organisation and confidence that existed in the working class by 1969, that no orders can be given from, you know, well, the ACTU is certainly not going to give them, but there's no time for any official communications to go out saying we will be going on strike at the following time. People hear the news on the radio at work and worker after worker, groups of workers, workplaces just walk off the job and go on strike in response immediately. And then, of course, by the following day, the Friday, then word has got out, more official notices has been given and so on. And so you've got hundreds of people walking out from all kinds of all kinds of jobs. And actually people start sending telegrams to Clary O'Shea in the prison. And I've got a list here of some of them. Uh, I like the way that they address them because, you know, people aren't used to sending telegrams to prisons mostly. So they usually address Clary O'Shea, temporary inmate, Pentridge Prison. And the day after he was jailed, he received congratulatory telegrams from all kinds of people. A combined union meeting at Port Kembla, the Teachers' Federation here in New South Wales, 500 delegates meeting in Newcastle, messages from stop work meetings of construction workers, crane drivers, meat workers. You get the picture. So that's that's how the thing is, you know, this is the day after he's been jailed. People are outraged by this. And then there's the weekend, but the weekend actually just is an opportunity for organising more and more people to walk out. So by the following by the following Monday, probably by that stage, already about a million people have walked off the job, gone on strike, either spontaneously, organised at a rank and file level or called out by their unions, but about a million people have gone on a semi-spontaneous general strike really across the country. And... That's the, you know, the trans public transport's not working in city after city and so on. So the bosses are obviously getting worried. That's the Monday. On Tuesday, a miraculous thing happens. A Sydney lottery winner, apparently, called Dudley McDougall, who used to work for the Australian Financial Review, as it turned out, he comes forward in the spirit of peace and harmony and let's all get over all of this nonsense Basically, the ruling class are really shit scared by this stage about what's happening uh, and even more so because it doesn't even seem to be under the control of the main union officials like the ACTU has certainly got no role in it. The ACTU, the Trades Hall Council in Victoria and the New South Wales Labor Council, those three peak union bodies oppose. They do not call any strikes and, in fact, they make a series of pretty unhelpful public statements and yet still workers go on strike, walk out and so on. So McDougall pays the fine. He pays the individual fine for Clary O'Shea and he pays the fine for the union as a whole. And yet the courts the courts don't move quickly. So O'Shea's still in jail until the following day, the Wednesday, and then he's let out and he makes a marvellous speech on the, on the steps of the, of the prison as he's let out of the prison. 
um, which I won't quote, but basically the gist of the speech is I didn't pay the fine, the union didn't pay the fine, we will never pay the fine. And that really does open the floodgates to uh, something that had been the the purview really of the left unions, the militant unions, which is we don't want to pay any of these fines, which they hadn't been able to sort of win the argument across the board. Actually, after O'Shea, the ACTU says, oh, we're going to adopt a policy that unions don't pay the fines in future. So actually the militancy, the spontaneous anger and confidence is the thing that pushes the ACTU when a million resolutions and motions at ACTU congresses and so on have simply not been able to. And so the final thing to say in, in this about the strikes and so on is that O'Shea's release doesn't stop all the strikes. So there are more strikes the end of the by the end of the week, uh, but they've changed their demand. It's no more a, a demand to release O'Shea. The demand is to repeal the penal powers. So things have really, in that one week, from his arrest and his jailing to his release, actually things have really turned around and it's that rank-and-file activity, that militancy, that preparedness to just, we're going to strike whether they say we can or not, that really makes a massive difference to all of those things. And although the laws, there are amendments to the laws in 1970 and a few more in 1975, but the bosses know we can't use these laws. They might stay on the statute books, but we can no longer use them because the working class will not allow it. So it's a massive victory. Well, talking a bit about this period of the late 60s and opening the floodgates to the 70s can feel like a lifetime away from where we are at in the trade union movement today, obviously facing a cost of living crisis, wages are, you know, being suppressed and nowhere near keeping up with inflation. So effectively, working class living standards are going backwards and there's very little strikes in response to this. And unions also face, as you mentioned before, arbitration system with a whole series of anti-union laws, restrictions on strikes. What are the lessons from this strike period for today? What are the lessons that unionists and leftists should draw out of this strike in 1969? Yeah, I think when people talk about 1969, it can often seem like, oh, well, it's so different to today. What could we, you know, we, what could we possibly get out of it? But I think there are a number of really important lessons and, you know, we can't recreate the spirit of 1969 overnight, but I think there are real lessons for what we can do and what we ought to be doing if we actually want to fundamentally challenge capitalism that I think for socialists, the lessons are pretty obvious. Firstly, okay, the ACTU was pretty shit then and it's even more shit now. So you don't rely on your union officials. They're not going to save you. The answer is going to be rebuilding the thing that was at the base of what happened uh, in response to O'Shea's jailing, which was uh, rank-and-file organisation, you know, combined unions, committees, all kinds of rank-and-file organisation uh, in industry after industry where workers had, by their own actions and their own militancy, gained the confidence to be able to act independently of their officials. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, and, well, no, actually more on that first thing, that this is something that workers can do today and which actually anyone who is a socialist, anyone who is a militant, anyone who thinks the bosses have it all their own way, we need to fight this, can be doing at work, which is trying to reorganise that kind of rank-and-file militancy, and it'll be on a small scale to begin with. It always is. It certainly was in the 50s when these kind of rank-and-file organisations were 
starting to get going in a number of industries. So you don't you don't start from let's have something massive. You start from let's find the people that want to fight that are going to be consistently against the boss and are not going to give any concessions and so on. It's something like what the in the National Tertiary Education Union we have with NTU Fightback at the moment. Small groups of people that will stand against the bosses and will stand against their union officials if their union officials try to sell them out. The second thing is, and this was a big part of what happened in 1969 and the period before it, which is the people that played a leading role in these in this militancy were people that were communists, that were socialists, that were saw themselves as part of the left of the Labor Party when that term had a meaning, unlike today. And organising socialists in a political organisation that's not just at the workplace, that has a broader worldview of being against capitalism and all its works, so therefore hostility not just to bosses but hostility to the bosses' courts, which all the courts are, uh, hostility to the arbitration system, the Fair Work Commission today, whatever it is, actually building a revolutionary organisation of socialists who are committed to that bigger project that was also, I think, part of the success. You know, I'm not discounting the kind of political problems that the Communist Party would have had and so on at the time, far from it, but the, uh, the fact that the people that played leading roles in so many of the union militancy and union struggles of the era were people that were organised communists and socialists and saw themselves as such, that's something as well that we can begin the process of rebuilding right now. So I think those... Those are the two key things, I think. And then the other thing is just that we can take massive inspiration from the fact that, again, the idea that Australia is just this quiet place, oh, we don't really have class struggle here and so on. You know, for me, I was a teenager when this happened. It was life-changing for me. It was so inspiring to just feel all that stuff that I thought about the working class and how the working class could change the world. You could really get a feel for... Look, in a week, the union movement's been turned on its head and actually the bosses are running scared and producing lottery winners out of nowhere in order to stop this happening. All of that, I think, is you know, inspiration that is really anyone can take from this period. Thanks so much, Dan. And that ends our very first episode as your new co-hosts of Red Flag Radio. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you've been inspired to read more about Australian labour history. Check out the show notes for some Red Flag articles and books about May Day and all the strikes we've covered. And please subscribe to Red Flag Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, that sort of thing. And if you like what we do and you want to support us on a more ongoing basis, please uh, become a patron on Patreon. You can get things like a newspaper subscription to our sister media outlet Red Flag, books and merch and things like that sent to your door uh, if you help us out. Uh, And mainly you'll be helping us keep going and improve the podcast and continue to bring you revolutionary content. Another thing, check out uh, our other media. We have so many articles up at redflag.org.au. If you have a question about socialism or you just want to know about some more cool working class history, I can guarantee you'll find the answer there. And that's it from us for now. You've been listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. Red Flag Radio.